Hey everyone, welcome to the Better Bible Reading Podcast for episode number 35. And today is another edition of Teaching Thursdays. We've talked so far about the idea of Bible interpretation and the different methods that are employed by anyone who picks up a Bible and seeks to understand it. Now, in theological categories, the two main Bible interpretations are dispensationalism and covenant theology. We've been looking at these two systems and the way that they tackle big doctrines and big theological issues. And the last one we looked at was the idea of the rapture. That episode was number 33, which you can listen to by going to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 33. And the topic was this, is the rapture biblical? We took a look at that question from selected scriptures and how dispensationalism and covenant theology has answered that question. Well, today the topic is this, this age in the age to come. That phrase is used in the Bible to describe the relationship between the present and the future, and even more so how it impacts the way that we live as Christians. And we're going to take the same approach we've been taking by listening to dispensationalism and covenant theology to see how these two schools of interpretation differ on their understanding of this age and the age to come. Well, if you're listening to this on the day of release, that means you're listening to this on Thanksgiving Day. So I want to extend all of you a happy Thanksgiving from me, Kevin Morris, over at Better Bible Reading. And I want to thank you for your listening support. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Hope you enjoy this episode. Feel free to head over to betterbiblereading.com where you can find the show notes to this episode as well as all previous episodes released on this podcast. Without further ado, here is This Age and the Age to Come. Um, but now to inaugurate our use of the whiteboard, I will put what we will talk about this morning, and that is, and I'm sure that not everybody will be able to see this, I couldn't get a good angle, This Age and the Age to Come. Now you see that phrase, or those two phrases really, all over the place in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, from Christ himself. And what I wanted to do this morning is look at a few ways that it's used, because this morning we're going to be thinking about the idea of fulfillment and the idea of this present age. And because dispensational theology focuses heavily on the future, what's to come, the way that we should understand the future and the now is going to be directly related to that, what we hear in the Bible, this age and the age to come. So I wanted to show us a few different places this age and the age to come is used in context so that we can get an understanding of how to think theologically through whatever it is that we're in right now and whatever is going to come in the future. So that first section, Matthew 12, we're going to look at verse 32. And this is part of Jesus teaching a a lesson here about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
And I'll tell you what, we'll look at verse 30. And uh, if somebody could read 30 through 32, please. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Okay. So in that sense, this age and the age to come speaks of the idea of forgiveness, how that works. You think about what is said in Acts chapter 17. Paul says the former times God has overlooked. This is a paraphrase. The former times God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, why would that be that he calls everyone to repent now? Well, what Jesus categorizes here as far as this age and the age to come, the only two ages where the concept of forgiveness occurs, or we could even think of repentance in that way. So what Jesus says here, the concept of forgiveness There's no forgiveness now for the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, nor is there going to be some later time where forgiveness would be granted to the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Another place we can look at is Mark 10.30. Mark 10.30. you might be aware that some of these verses we're reading are paralleled in some of the other Gospels too. I'm just skipping over the fact that they're paralleled, so we're just going to look at one. Any of these that you'll find in some of the other Gospels, we're just looking at in one particular one for the sake of time. I'll read this. This is what Jesus says. Um, look in, in verse 29 of Mark chapter 10. The concept that's being talked about here is the idea of salvation. Jesus just talked to the rich young man and unpacked for him what salvation means and the idea of sacrifice. And he had a hard time receiving Jesus' words and the disciples come and and offer a follow-up question. Well, who can be saved then? And here's what Jesus says down in verse uh, 29, responding to Peter. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So there's that phrase again, the age to come. And this time, Jesus uses it to speak of a concept we've been talking about a few times already, that is the completion of our salvation. Now, what Jesus is not talking about is that these people have to wait for the age to come before they can ever get eternal life, right? That would be future life. It wouldn't be eternal life if that were the case. 
But what we're talking about in terms of salvation and in terms of eternal life is Scripture teaches us there's a sense in which we're saved now and a sense in which we're waiting to be saved. There's a sense in which we have eternal life now and a sense in which we're waiting to get that eternal life. And I talked about that last week. Actually, it may have been two weeks ago. And saying how the way that that future waiting period happens and is completed is in our glorification. In the consummation when Christ fully glorifies us with incorruptible bodies, resurrection, new heavens and new earth. That's how we're waiting for what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Another verse we could look at is Luke chapter 20, verse 34. Luke 20, verse 34. This is in the midst of the Sadducees trying to trip up Jesus with a theological question. If you read Matthew or Mark, Jesus takes these on in a kind of a threefold uh, pop quiz, if you will. So you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes all coming to Jesus and trying to trip him up in some way. And in this particular passage, the Sadducees, who don't believe in the supernatural, don't believe in resurrection, don't believe in angels. The Sadducees have this, in their minds, brilliant question to trip up Jesus about marriage. And in this passage, Luke twenty thirty four, Jesus answers um, their question. Uh, you know, for the sake of for the sake of clarity with this particular one, um, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and read twenty seven. Um, through the end of that section. So starting in 27 of Luke chapter 20. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Here's the hypothetical. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left, no children, and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And here's what Jesus says to them. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age... And to the resurrection from the dead. Now there's a really important correlation that Jesus makes between the age to come and the resurrection of the dead. Okay. Let me read that again for you. Verse 35. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now, in that case, I think it's abundantly clear that Jesus shows us that the age to come, that age, is nothing less than the resurrection from the dead and the final completion of death 
being destroyed once and for all. That's the way that he categorizes that age, that those who attain the resurrection from the dead and those who cannot die anymore. And that's how Jesus makes that distinction. This age, Mary, given in marriage, that age, no more marriage. So this age and that age, Jesus talks about the idea of marriage, marriage being a temporal element of this age and the age to come. The shadow of marriage is fulfilled in the substance of Christ and his bride. One, uh, actually two more, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and somebody can read 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. So in this one, the function of wisdom is spoken of this age. And it's also spoken of in temporal way, in a temporal way, because he says, verse 6, those rulers of this age, the wisdom of this age, all of that is doomed to pass away. There's it's a temporal element of this age waiting for the age to come. And then lastly, Ephesians chapter 1. Those certainly aren't all of the verses that talk about that this age, the age to come dynamic. But those to give us a, a flavor, a definition, an idea of what we're talking about when we think of this age and the age to come. So... What we looked at in these verses, we looked at the concept of forgiveness in Matthew, eternal life in Mark, marriage in Luke, wisdom in 1 Corinthians, and Christ's dominion in Ephesians chapter 1. Now at this point, it's important that we make this um, discovery or proposition, however we might want to say it, is that this age and the age to come in Scripture particularly in the New Testament, are the two successive ages or progressions in redemptive history. That's one of the most important parts that we could look at, I would say, would be the way Jesus uses it in Luke 20 when we were talking about marriage. So he says that there's this element of the Christian, the element of the follower of Christ, where the age to come designates resurrection and the end of death. So we're in this age now, and the age to come represents the consummation, everything coming to its proper end, and Christ executing perfect judgment and reward to the saints. Okay, so that is to say we as Christians now are waiting for nothing short of the consummation. The reason that matters is because dispensational theology does not see things quite that simply put. Dispensational theology isn't looking for the age to come the way that we just described it. Dispensational theology... As I mentioned two weeks ago, they understand the end times or the last days as that time where we wait for the rapture. And then immediately following the rapture, the great tribulation. And immediately following the great tribulation, Christ's second coming. And immediately following Christ's second coming, 
the 1,000 year millennial reign of Christ on earth. And then immediately following that, Satan being completely overthrown and cast away. After that, then final judgment, then a second resurrection, which by the way, I left out that whole concept of the resurrections too. But all that to say, and I'll, I'll write those out here in a minute, but all that to say that dispensationalism literally does, and I think probably if I was talking to a dispensationalist, they may disagree with this, but I, I think it would be fair to say that they are waiting, in fact, for ages to come. They're waiting for these different dispensations to play themselves out by the one we're in being terminated with a rapture of the church. So this morning, since we talked about the rapture last week, I thought it would be helpful to kind of segue the conversation about the Great Tribulation by talking about the way the New Testament lays out the time period in which we're in, this age, and that which we're waiting on, the age to come. In that correlation, there's nothing in between these two. There's no additional moment of history that goes outside the bounds of this age and the age to come. Now, in dispensationalism... They may well say that this age represents both the church age and all of those other things that happened before the age to come. But the point I'm making is we don't see such a separation in the New Testament allotting for all these additional times, especially as it comes to this age representing the church being present. But in dispensationalism, somewhere between all this, the church exits out via rapture. What we also don't see what Jesus was just saying and in the passages we looked at between this age and the age to come, you don't see this exit happening. What we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we talked about how this catching away or calling up is a better understood not as the church leaving the earth but as the church going to welcome the returning Christ and again we, we spent quite a bit of time looking at that so I'd like to read to you this is that book I was talking about things to come this is uh, one of the most prominent dispensational theologies written and it's written by a professor. Um, well, first of all, this was his Ph.D. writing in um, his time at Dallas Theological Seminary. Went on to be a professor. And he writes this. I'd like to uh, read uh, just a portion of it to you to further this conversation a little bit. Yes, good. His name is J. Dwight Pentecost. Which is, which is uh, an unfortunate last name. Mm. And, uh, you know, just for the sake of writing it, I'll go ahead and put his name. Once we get, once we get to uh, some, other, some other weeks in this uh, study, I'm going to start recommending some uh, books that I think help. So, you know, I'm basically spending a week talking about tribulation, a week talking about the rapture. 
but these books spend hundreds of pages talking about it. So there certainly is opportunity to kind of further this study well, well beyond what we're doing here. Um, because this is just kind of a survey of the differences between covenant theology and dispensational theology. Probably dispensationals w- would not r- agree with that. Um, most of them would probably say this age in the Bible, they would kind of substitute that to say the church age, which they would see as Acts chapter 2 to the rapture. So let me read this for you. Um, this is J. Dwight Pentecost, not J. Dwight the Pentecostal, J. Pentecost. And uh, he's talking about um, his own transition from rapture to the great tribulation. This was probably why I wanted to spend this intermediate week here talking about um, this age and the age to come. Because when he unpacks this, he talks about a phrase, really two phrases, that have to do with a verse that we read in 1 Thessalonians 5 last week. And that phrase was, the day of the Lord. And in writing this, he makes a distinction between the day of the Lord, which we normally see most of the time in the Old Testament, as depicting a future judgment to come, and the day of Christ, which... We see in the New Testament and often refers to reward and blessing. Now, dispensational theology, these are two different realities. Whether or not they happen in the same time period is up for discussion in in their camp. Um, But here's what he says when talking about the way that this works out. So here's what he says. The only way this day, that is the day of the Lord, the only way this day could break unexpectedly upon the world is to have it begin immediately after the rapture of the church. It is thus concluded that the day of the Lord is that extended period of time beginning with God's dealing with Israel after the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation period and extending through the second advent and millennial reign unto the creation of the new heavens and new earth after the millennium. So he sees the church age and then the rapture. Immediately after the rapture is the day of the Lord, which includes tribulation, Christ's return, millennial reign, and the new heavens and new earth after the millennium. So that's that's kind of a hugely broad... Uh, category and then here's what he says about the day of Christ this is um, he's actually um, quoting from the Schofield Bible when he says this this is uh, what what it says in there speaking of the day of Christ the day of Christ a closely related term which has brought confusion into the minds of some says the expression day of Christ occurs in the following passages, and he cites several passages in the New Testament, has day of Christ. And then Second Thessalonians 2, incorrectly, as day of the Lord. The day of Christ relates 
wholly to the reward and blessing of saints at his coming as the day of the Lord is connected with judgment. And so he concludes, Pentecost concludes, it thus appears that two separate programs are in view when these two expressions are used, although two separate time areas, they cannot be made to refer to the same event. Now, what I would like to do is disagree with that. And then I would like to show you why. So to summarize that, go ahead and write them here. The day of the Lord. I'm sorry uh, if my font is not to your liking. The day of Christ. All right. So two separate realities happening there according to dispensational theology. The day of the Lord refers to judgment. The day of Christ refers to reward. Now, is it true that these two are happening in completely different realities? This one, according to them, is happening after the church is raptured. So, a a good way to think about this, last week we talked about the rapture. Next week we're going to be talking about the tribulation. And according to Pentecost and dispensational theology, when that tribulation happens, this is what's happening all the way until the new heavens and new earth. So, another way to say it would be that the day of the Lord or judgment is dealing with Israel. The day of Christ, which is the day of reward, is mainly the church, but also Israel. Now, a few things have to happen for that to even be a possibility. First of all, the reason we've been looking at all these previous weeks is because the only way that this can even be a possibility is if, in fact, there is a distinction between the church and Israel. So you, you first have to grant that these aren't the same people that we're talking about. Secondly, you have to grant that somehow the New Testament use of the day of Christ is something completely different from the day of the Lord. So let's, let's kind of uh, work that out a little bit to decide whether or not it's true that these two days are different or the same. And keep in mind that category we've been talking about already, this age and the age to come, because it interacts with this day of Lord, day of Christ um, difference. So here's some more verses for us uh, to look through. Second um, Peter chapter 3, verse 18, here's how he distinguishes the two. This is actually the very last verse of Second Peter that helps. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, there again, you have this concept of that day or day or the day, whatever we're waiting for, and also... 
that dynamic between this age and the age to come, right? Because he says now into the day of eternity. So he correlates whatever that day is with eternity. Another passage, um, and because I have actually about almost a dozen of them, we won't, I won't make you have to turn to all of them, um, but I, I'll call them out what they are. Second Peter 3.10, just a little bit before this, uses the word to say the day of the Lord. Second Peter 3.10 says the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which correlates directly with 1 Thessalonians 5 we looked at last week. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, let me just say here, in my opinion, that automatically rules out this concept. Because Peter's saying the day of the Lord is designated as the passing away of heaven and earth. They say the day of the Lord refers to at least a 1,000 year time period, the millennial reign of Christ, the seven year tribulation. So you're talking about the day of the Lord at the bare minimum lasting 1,007 years. Because there's that literal interpretation being applied, which we talked about four or five weeks ago. So he uses it to talk about the day of the Lord coming as a thief and a day of judgment where heaven and earth are ultimately done away with in some form or fashion. Backtrack a little bit more. Second Peter 2.9. 2 Peter 2.9 says then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment so in this sense the day that we're waiting on represents a day where judgment will happen these I'll read out um, just for the sake of time um, 2 Timothy 4 8 talks about the day as being an appearing and a day of award. And that, just to get you the particular language that he uses, 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So there again, you don't see this distinction being made. In this case, reward and blessing. He doesn't refer to it as the day of Christ. He just refers to it as that day, which in their minds is sufficient because we're talking about one reality, not two different realities here. And again, Second Thessalonians 2, verse 2, <clears throat> the day of the Lord will be preceded by some kind of falling away, some kind of turning away. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5.2, just like we saw in 2 Peter, the day of the Lord will come as a thief. But what Paul says there, what we looked at last week, is that day is going to come as a thief for those not in Christ. Because it will fall upon them in swift judgment. But then he even says, but we, we don't belong to the darkness. That day shouldn't surprise us like a thief. We should await and welcome our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be watchful unto his coming. So that thief concept only applies in the category of judgment 
and those not in Christ, not to us. And Paul also doesn't say there, don't worry about the day of the Lord coming to you as a thief because you're already going to be raptured out of there. He doesn't say that either, which is important. 2 Corinthians 1.14 is the day of righteous boasting. Paul's waiting for this day to come in which we can boast in the most righteous way possible as to what Christ has done on our behalf and what he's allowed us to participate in here on earth. 1 Corinthians 5.5 calls it the day that brings about salvation. The day that brings about salvation. I'll read that one just so you can hear a good, uh, a good way that it's described. You are to deliver this man. This is dealing with church discipline here. Somebody who's been sexually immoral in the congregation hasn't um, been willing to repent of it. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So there again, the day of the Lord designated here... It's a day that brings about salvation, not just judgment. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, it's the day of guiltlessness, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.10, a day of Christ in which we can hope to be blameless. Philippians 1.6, the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 12.16, this one's really important. Romans 12.16 or I'm sorry, Romans 2.16. He says, starting in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, really important here, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There you see the judgment concept being undertaken by Christ. I think that verse there is one of the most proving that we're not talking about two different dispensations of God's authority. We're not talking about a 1,007 year or more day of the Lord, which correlates to judgment, and then a day of Christ following of reward. Because even here, this judgment that's coming is executed through Christ. So they're brought together. In other words, it's simply to say that just like in the New Testament, you hear Jesus regularly interchange kingdom of heaven with kingdom of God so it is that you had this interchange day of the Lord day of Christ not to confuse readers and not to make us think that we're talking about two completely different realities I think one of the best ways we can see this is by having again that redemptive historical framework we spent a good week talking about redemptive history as the lens and outline that we use when we think about Bible interpretation. And redemptive history sees the reality of the Bible and Revelation 
as the unfolding of redemption through history. It started out with the promise in Genesis 3.15 as Christ to be the promised seed to come and crush the head of the serpent. And throughout the rest of the Bible, this promise is being fulfilled. You see it in Hebrews, you see it in 1 John. The reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil, to fulfill that promise after the fall. And in that framework, what we also have is progressive revelation. This is not a political term, but it's a term that speaks of the unfolding of more and more of the truth of God to his people. The book of Genesis is a beautiful revelation of God to man, but it is not all of God's revelation. It is not the only book in the Bible. God has given us 65 other books that have given us more and more revelation and unfolding of truth. For example, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talk about God as creator, right? They unpack the days of creation, how God did it, what he did, who did it, God did it. And so we have this concept in the Old Testament as... God as creator. Okay. When we get to the New Testament, something interesting happens. You can honestly see it in the introduction to many of the New Testament letters. And even the first chapter of the Gospel of John. But we see that... See, probably a good one to look at. Colossians chapter 1 would probably be a good one. Somebody want to read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17? And then I'll read uh, the beginning part of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That is to say, New Testament. Christ as creator. Are these contradictory statements? No. This is an example of progressive revelation. Generally speaking, God's revealed as creator. Throughout scripture, God is revealed as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, we're focused in on Christ as creator. These are not talking about two different things, but this is just an example of what we could call redemptive historical language. So language used in light of God's progressive revelation to us from Genesis all the way to Revelation. A good example of this also is the fact that in the Old Testament, we're dealing with types and shadows. 
those things that are pointing to, testifying to the coming of Christ. And Christ comes not in contradiction to those things, but in fulfillment of those things, the substance of those things. And it's the same way here. And it's also the same way in the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. I believe that's just simply progressive revelation, redemptive historical language. The, New, the Old Testament readers were sure that a day of judgment was to come. They didn't understand all the ins and outs of how that would take place. And by the time we get to the New Testament, Christ is seen as the judge. Christ is seen as the one who has authority. Christ is seen as the one who will bless his church and judge the world who has persecuted his church. Simply put, this is just redemptive historical language. We don't have to talk about two utterly separate categories of day of the Lord and day of Christ. Because remember, in the New Testament, we're simply talking about this age and the age to come. It's just, I mean, it's a simple thing, honestly, in my mind at least, that dispensational theology unnecessarily restricts and categorizes and separates. And you have so many key focuses on literal interpretations of language that even in dispensational theology you will see some when it gets comes to the gospels that when you see the phrase kingdom of god and kingdom of heaven in some dispensational circles these are two completely different kingdoms there too and again I mean, you just run into all kinds of problems don't you are we disciples or are we christians well there's two those are two different people and I'm being facetious here, but that's kind of the way that that happens. You know, you run down that trajectory and suddenly, you know, everything means something totally different. So I hope that that shows you in some way of how we're talking about the same reality in light of redemptive history. Now, one last thing before we end here. We didn't have time to look at this last week. Um, So... Did anybody do their homework? Because I mentioned homework. Does anybody even remember what the homework was? Are you talking about two weeks ago? Or? Last week. Okay, so last week, we didn't have time to go to 1 Corinthians 15. And I said, here's your homework. Read 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, don't worry, we'll have a time of confession during the service. And you can, you can be dealt with then. But uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to give you some homework this week, okay? Here's what it is. Go back and read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, which we covered last week. Last week, we didn't have time to get to 1 Corinthians 15. This week, we don't have time to go back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. So pick and choose however you want to familiarize yourself. But I think this is helpful to us because in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we're talking about the, the church welcoming the returning Christ in chapter 4 in the day of the Lord being inaugurated chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul is very much interested in talking about the resurrection and I think seeing this passage relating directly to 1 Thessalonians 4 proves that we're talking about one and the same reality. 
In dispensational theology, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the rapture. Something completely different from the day of the Lord. Remember, we read in that quotation that according to them, the day of the Lord doesn't happen until after the rapture happens. Because the church has to get out of the way, so to speak. Well, here, Paul sees no reason to put those two realities against each other as if there has to be this rapture happen or the church has to be out of the way or whatever the case may be. So go ahead and take a look at verse 20. I'll read verse 20. And I hope that if you'll go back and look at 1 Thessalonians 4, you'll see that the being caught up with the Lord and the day of the Lord are the same event. The same event, which is Christ's second coming, Christ's return. First Corinthians 15, we've got one more volunteer here. Somebody will read 20 through 27. All right. <clears throat> Next week, we'll start looking at timelines. That'll, that'll be helpful when it comes to the idea of tribulation and millennium and final judgment. But just as a final closing thought here this morning... Dispensationalism teaches that 1 Thessalonians 4 is a rapture of the church, a general resurrection that follows, and then tribulation, judgment, millennial reign, new heavens and new earth, which also would be a second resurrection in there, or even a third in some cases. This passage, 1 Corinthians 15... If we can harmonize this with 1 Thessalonians 4, that will completely prove that view to be wrong. Because first and foremost, in this passage, death is destroyed. That's important because in dispensational theology, after Christ returns and this millennial reign happens and there's a resurrection that happens... There's still death happening. There's still marriage happening. There's offspring being given. In other words, Christ is reigning visibly on earth, but that's still not the second coming, at least in the grand scheme of things, because according to them, death will still happen. Marriage and offspring will still happen. Now, Jesus already talked about this earlier this morning in those passages, that this age to come is going to be the cutting off of the reality of marriage, the cutting off of death, and the fulfillment of eternal life. Now, a few things to point out here in, in this passage that was just read. What happens in 1 Corinthians 15? You have verse 23. Resurrection happens to those who are dead in Christ, those who are alive at His coming, and then... Verse 24, what are we talking about now? The end. Then comes the end. There's nothing else happening between these two realities. Dispensationalism would say somewhere between that you have tribulation, millennial reign, all these things, which again we talked about at least 1,007 years worth of stuff. But he says Christ returns Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
So he comes for resurrection and for judgment. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And again, how is death destroyed? By resurrection. There is no more death if everybody is raised either to life eternal or to eternal judgment and damnation outside of Christ. Either way, there's no more death. So there's no more time period in earth happening here. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 110, fulfillment of that psalm. And in this, Paul is showing that the order of events, what we're waiting on, is Christ to return. But we're not waiting on Christ to return to do the ten plus different things that are going to happen over this long course of time in dispensational theology. But we're waiting on the end. We're waiting on the age to come. We're waiting on the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, all one and the same, where God delivers to us our eternal life once and for all, which can only happen through glorification, which can only happen through resurrection. We don't see in the New Testament this incredible segregation of events and time periods and people groups. All those who are in Christ await for Christ. All those outside of Christ must repent because there's coming a day when Christ will return and all these things will take place. So I think in light of getting ready to look at the great tribulation next week, what that means, what it is, what it's not, um, it's important that we understand this dynamic, this age and the age to come. Because what we're talking about in Scripture when Christ returns is the age to come. All that we're waiting on falls under that banner. We're not waiting on things in, in between all those events. So does anybody have any questions this morning? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, so and Matthew 24 is where we will basically spend the entire morning in next week. Because we're going to be talking about the Great Tribulation, which is typically thought of as what's in Matthew 24. So that whole passage of one who's here, another person there beside him, one goes, the other doesn't go, um, we'll talk about next week, but just for a very simple baseline answer. What we're talking about once we get to that point is the return of Christ, which would be welcoming him on the one hand and the one being judged on the other hand. So I don't think that that passage, as far as one remaining and one being taken, I don't think that's talking about um, a rapture, at least in the sense of how dispensational theology would say the one being raptured is going to be raptured for seven years until tribulation is over. Then they're going to come back for a thousand years. Then, you know, that kind of thing. The rapture, I think, is a way that God, in dispensational theology at least, the way that God visibly shows that his attention is now on ethnic Israel again. Well, a dispensationalist would say, see, there's some people that believe in the rapture that aren't dispensationalists, and the difference is when it happens. So most non-dispensationalists see a rapture happening, but it's happening after tribulation. Dispensational version of rapture is before tribulation. So the way that they would look forward to it 
would say, because we don't have to go through tribulation. And that is the point. Right. That is the big point. Yeah, I would say you could say that, and then also in that, they break it up because there's different people groups that have to be dealt with, i.e. the church, ethnic Israel, the world. So, but, but yeah, you could say the difference between seeing it all as one event taking place versus 1,000 plus years of generations and et cetera, et cetera. All right, I know we're over time, so let me, uh, let me pray. If you have any other questions, you can come up and talk to me afterwards. Thank you for your patience this morning. Well, thanks for listening to This Age in the Age to Come. I hope you have a good biblical survey of that phrase and how it really helps us not drift to one extreme or the other whenever we start thinking about the end times. And this conversation is going to be really helpful as well because all those scriptures that we looked at are going to direct us in how we should understand our next topic of discussion, which is the Great Tribulation. So if you enjoyed this episode, I would be very appreciative if you could head over to iTunes and leave me a review. That is one of the most helpful ways that you can get the word out to other people, and it will just push me higher and higher on the uh, search function on iTunes, which will help this podcast get discovered by more people. So only if you believe in what I'm doing, only if you've been helped, leave an honest review. But if you want to leave one, I would so appreciate it. Also, head on over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 35, where you can get all the show notes and scripture references that have been mentioned in this particular episode. And feel free to interact with me. There's a comment function that you can use on all of the show notes pages. You can leave your feedback. You can talk to me. You can interact with me. I'd be more than glad to do that with you. But until next time, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. God bless you.